let's go ahead and pray. We've got a lot to get through, and I'm just going to go ahead and forewarn you that uh, this is some of the most difficult material to, not necessarily to understand, but to accept in the whole Bible. Uh, so this is going to be a challenging, uh, potentially at least for some of you, a challenging section. So it's Romans nine fourteen through 23. You can turn there. If you thought it's been challenging to this point in Romans 9, buckle up because this is the most challenging. And I would also encourage you to remember that lest you become irritated at me or upset at me, I'm just trying. going to try to explain what I think the text clearly and straightforwardly says. And then you have to wrestle through it before the Lord. And the text is actually designed, you know, recognizes its difficulty for us and actually exhorts us how to respond to it. Okay, but I'm just encouraging you to prepare your heart to be potentially offended by this. And to recognize that, you know, whenever we're offended by something in God's word, what should we do? We should recognize, well, God is God, perfect in every aspect of his being, infinite in wisdom, perfect in righteousness. So if I have a problem with his word, then probably the problem lies with me, right? Because I know I am finite and I am sinful, So, if I have a problem with something that he says, it's probably because, it is because, I'm, there's something wrong with me, right? My mind is blown because I'm a finite creature, and God says, yes, yes, you know, surprise, surprise, my ways are higher than your ways, right? Uh, And we are fallen and sinful, and so... We have certain presuppositions and ways that we think about things that are corrupted by sin, and God's righteous ways often stand opposed to that and confront that in us. So I'm just encouraging you in that regard to recognize that ahead of time, because it will be potentially a challenge for some of you. And, you know, there are things that require interpretation, and and therefore, you know, I could be... I could mess up in the way that I present and the way that I, I teach this, and I'm fully willing to, you know, recognize that that might be the case. But to the extent that I'm accurately teaching this, this is God's word to us. And so we have to think of it that way. Obviously, we, we know that, and we know that every time we come to it, to our study, we have to approach it that way. But we especially need to remember that today, right? This is not just Jeremy. This is not just some random book that we can stand over and evaluate. This is the Word of God. So with that said, let's pray. (laughs) Father, thank you for our time this morning. We ask that you would please bless our study of your Word. Give us understanding. Illumine our hearts so that we could understand what it says. And we pray that you would also soften our hearts by your Spirit. Humble us and make us willing to accept what you teach so that it might have the the effect upon us that you have designed. And we pray that you would guard us, especially this morning, from rising up in arrogance and pride and 
kicking against your word um, because we don't like it, we pray that you would guard us against that and, and help us in this. We need your spirit. And so we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. A little review. Romans 1 through 5. Paul preaches that the gospel Paul preaches is that unrighteous people can be saved from God's wrath by receiving the gift of justification by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the theme of Romans 1 through 5. Romans 6 and 7, those who receive this gift of justification by faith receive other blessings as well, including new spiritual life by which they now serve God instead of sin. Romans 8, the indwelling Holy Spirit serves as a foretaste of the resurrection life that they will one day inherit in the new creation with complete certainty. And that brings us to Romans 9, where we're going to sort of slow down in our review here and zoom in. And in this section, Paul, in these verses, Paul explains that the widespread unbelief among his fellow Jews that everyone observes doesn't negate God's promises because God didn't give his promises to all Israelites, but to some who were chosen by grace. Now today, as we move into verses 14 through 23, this is his basic argument. The fact that God chooses to save some and not others, apart from anything they are or do, is not unjust because God has the right to do so as the creator. Okay, that's where we're headed today. So that's a little bit of a review, kind of puts things in context. Let's dive in. Romans 9, uh, 14 through 18. If someone would read that passage, Romans 9, 14 through 18, that would be great. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have so that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show you, show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So that he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he pardons whomever he wills. Thank you. So just by way of context, you know, if you look back in the preceding context, you remember that Paul starts out in this chapter by, you know, he's going to address the unbelief of his fellow Jews. And he starts by, you know, assuring us that what he's about to say is not motivated by a lack of concern for their souls. He cares deeply for them. In fact, he says, I would be willing to be accursed by God if that were possible, that they might be saved, right? But, he says, when we look at the unbelief of so many Jews, we should not think that God's promises to Israel have failed. And then he explains why. Because even going back in their history, we see that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not every ethnic descendant of Israel belongs to Israel, as in Israel who will receive God's promises. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. And then he points out, think of Isaac and Ishmael. They're both offspring of Abraham. 
but God chose to give his promises to Isaac. And it was through Isaac's, it was through Isaac that the offspring of Abraham who would receive the promise were descended. So they're, they're both offspring in one sense, but in terms of the offspring to whom the promises belong, it's only the descendants of Isaac. And then he says, just in case you might think, yeah, but that's because Isaac was born through Sarah rather than Hagar. He says, okay, let's go to the next one. Isaac's children, twin sons through his one wife, Rebecca. And he says, look there, two offspring, but only one are considered the offspring of Abraham to whom the promise are belong. And that's Jacob, you know, Esau, offspring of Abraham, but not received the promise, right? And so, and he says, he points out this choice was made to Sarah while they were still in the womb before they'd done anything good or bad. And he says that that was so that when you read that in Genesis, you should recognize that the reason that God did it that way, chose Jacob over Esau while they were in the womb, is so that his purpose of election might continue. In other words, that the promise might be given according to God's choice, not merit or qualification in people. Right, And so that's the, that's the context that is leading up to our text where he says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? So you feel the weight of that, right? Isn't that unfair that God would choose to give his promises to one and not the other based on no merit in them, nothing that they did or were? So let's look at this text here, 9, 14 through 18. Here's my summary of it. Here, Paul argues that unconditional, God's unconditional election of some, like Isaac, like Jacob, to salvation, does not make him unjust because Scripture teaches that he can choose to show mercy to some and to judge others by hardening their hearts. So here he actually takes it a step further in these texts. He not only says that God has the right to show saving mercy to some, right? To give them his promises of grace. But he has the right to not only choose some, but to harden others, to judge them with hardening of their hearts so that they will not be saved. Very difficult, but... It's clearly what the text says. Okay, so let's go through it. First, in verse 14a, Paul cites an objection to what he had just been saying. So remember Jacob and Esau, Isaac and Ishmael, God's purpose of election. He cites an objection. What shall we say then? Here's a potential objection to what I've just said. Is there injustice on God's part? In other words, Paul, if what you're saying is true, isn't that unfair? Isn't God being unjust? That he would choose apart to give his salvation to some and not others apart from any merit, anything that they did before they were even born? Isn't that unfair? That's the potential objection he's citing. Verses 14b through 15. Let's just take this little phrase for a second. By no means in the Greek, that's what's called an emphatic negation, right? Why? Because we've just asked, Is there injustice with God? 
So you see the argument that people would say is, Paul, that can't be true about God because that would be unfair. He takes, he doesn't even consider the idea that this isn't true about God. It is true about God. And therefore, is it unfair? Absolutely not. There can be no injustice with God. God defines what is just. If God does it, it's just, right? Whether we think it or not. And and I want you, this is a very important point. When we look at things that God, that the Bible says God does, there's two temptations. One is a temptation to judge God by our standards of justice, right? We say, okay, I know the text seems to say that God does that, but that's not right. And we don't even think about the fact that what we're doing is putting God on the stand and judging him according to our standards. But as soon as we judge God as, being, as doing something that's unfair, we recognize something. Oh, that, I probably shouldn't do that, right? I probably shouldn't accuse God of injustice. So what do we do to get around it? We change what the Bible seems to say God does. And we say, well, God wouldn't do something that I think is unfair. So I'm going to rearrange what this text seems to be saying and figure out a way for it to say something else that seems more fair to me, right? You see how that works? That's our temptation here, right here. He says, no, this is true about God, and it is not unjust. For, so he's going to give reasons why it's not unjust. All right, and what he's going to do is he's going to cite two passages of Scripture from the Old Testament to explain why it would be untrue to say that God's unconditional election of some to salvation is not unfair. First, verses 15 through 16. For, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So first he cited God's words to Moses in Exodus thirty-three nineteen to establish the question of who receives mercy. And in our case, and I've established this before, if you read this text all the way through, right, in Romans 9, you read Romans 9 all the way through, it is very clear if you are willing to see it, if you're willing to accept it, that he is talking about salvation, right? From the very opening lines, he's concerned about the salvation of the Jewish people. He says, I would be willing to be cursed if if it meant that they would be saved, right? He doesn't use the word salvation there. You get to the end of the chapter, he starts using the word salvation very explicitly and tying back what he's talking into the righteousness that comes by faith. So we are talking about salvation here in Romans 9. And salvation is something that Paul has made very clear God gives on the basis of his mercy or his grace, his free favor, And he establishes from these words that God gives to Moses in Exodus 33, 19, that God claims the right for himself to give mercy to whom he will and to have compassion on whom he will. So this is a Semitic parallelism here. He's basically saying the same things twice. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I have the right to give mercy to whomever I will. And think about it. It must be this way. Because if God was obligated to give mercy to someone, well, then it wouldn't be mercy, would it? 
He would owe it to them. It would be a matter of justice. The very nature of mercy is that it is just undeserved, right? It's just free pity and favor and compassion. So it has to be given apart from consideration of a person's merit. Otherwise, if you consider merit, well, then you're talking about justice, right? But we're talking about people that don't deserve it. And he's saying, look, why is it not, why is it not unfair or unjust, like this objector says, why is it not unjust for me to choose to give saving mercy to some, like Jacob, and not to others, like Esau? Why? Because I have the right to give my mercy to whom I want. So, that's the first thing. And we say, well, God, that seems right to me. <laughs> like, when you put it that way, I guess that's true, right? Here's another answer he gives. Verses 17 to 18. For, so you need, see, here's another reason. For, the scripture says to Pharaoh... For this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now let's just stop there for a moment. We know what we're diving into when you cite this verse, which is Exodus 9.16. You're diving into the, the story of the Exodus, right? And we know about Pharaoh. He's the one who just refused to let God's people go. And what we see is he cites a particular passage in there where God, speaking to Pharaoh, tells Pharaoh that he raised Pharaoh up so that he might show his power in the earth. Now you say, well, how did Pharaoh become the means by which God showed his power? Well, because when Pharaoh refused to let the people go, what did God do? judged Israel with plagues. And by judging Israel with plagues, he showed his power and it became famous so that even when they went to cross over the Jordan River into Canaan, what did Rahab say? Oh, we've heard about you guys. We've heard about what God did to Egypt, right? His name was proclaimed, but that would only happen if Pharaoh kept saying, I refuse to let them go after a plague after a plague until 10 plagues were gone. So you see, he's saying... That Pharaoh's hardness of heart was the means, a means by which God then demonstrated his power to the fame of his name in the earth. Now, this is hard stuff, because notice what he says then. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills. He can choose to show saving mercy to some. And he hardens whomever he wills. So he can take two undeserving people, right? Like Jacob. He was a scoundrel. And God could say, I'm going to choose to show mercy to him out of my free favor. I'm going to set my love upon him. And he could take another person, Pharaoh, also undeserving, like Jacob. And he could choose to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he would show his just justice through Pharaoh. Right? This is not hard to understand. It's just hard to accept, isn't it? Right? But when we try to focus it in on what God's doing for us and what God, you know, is that mankind deserves something of some sort, it can appear to be unjust. But when you think that we are here for his good pleasure and to show his power, if he gives his mercy to everybody, where's his power? If he shows his 
his judgment on everybody. Where is his mercy? So right. there has to be those things that only he can choose to show it so we see his full mercy and his full power and his full justice. Right, and we'll see that unfold as the chapter goes on, but I think you're bringing up a very good point here, Katrin, that if in our minds man is at the center of this whole story of the Bible, such that God exists to give us things, then we were going to really struggle with this type of language, right? (laughs) But if God is at the center, and that this whole thing is about glorifying Him, well, then this makes a lot more sense, right? But that's hard for us. It's hard. So, in other words, there's something in us, in our flesh, that relates to this uh, objection, isn't there? Okay, I want to go to an interpretive question here. How should we understand this text which Paul cited in verse 17? The text is Exodus 9.16. In relation to his point in verse 18 where he says, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Because when you look at Exodus 9.16, which he quotes in verse 17, it's confusing, there's nothing in there about hardening, right? It just says that he'd raise Pharaoh up to show his power. So where does Paul get the conclusion of hardening? Well, because like a lot of times when Paul cites an Old Testament verse, he's expecting that his readers are going to understand the context, right? And when you go back and look in the context, you see, oh, that's where he's getting it. So let's read Exodus chapter 9, verses 12 through 17. Would someone read Exodus 9, 12 through 17? But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning, present yourself before Pharaoh, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself, and and on your servants, and on your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. And all the way, yeah, all the way through seventeen, yeah. 17. Mm-hmm. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people, and will not let them go. Okay, so this is a very. You see, verse sixteen there. That's the verse that Paul cites. But in the context, oh, you can see real quick where he's getting the idea of God hardening whomever he wills. Because in verse 12, it says, The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them. So you could say, you know, on the one hand, why did Pharaoh not let the people go? Because God hardened his heart so that he would not let the people go. That's what the text says, right? So there is God's sovereignty. It's an act of judgment because you say, well, poor Pharaoh, he didn't deserve that. But Pharaoh's a sinner, right? If God wants to harden his heart, he can do it, right? But you also see in verse 17 that at the same time, Pharaoh, in the very same action of not letting his people go, was acting in pride, right? Verse 17, you are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. In fact, 
In chapter, if you go back in chapter 8, verse 15 and verse 32, it explicitly says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So, the same act, right? Not letting Israel go. God was hardening Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh was hardening his heart in pride, right? Does that kind of remind you, like, in the same act, Pharaoh had a sinful motive, God had a good purpose. God's sovereignty, human responsibility, compatible together. It kind of reminds you of Genesis 50, 20, where Joseph says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. You planned it, God planned it. You had an evil motive, God had a good motive, right? Even like when we just had in that last, not that long ago, talking about where, um, I forget his name, proclaimed what was going to happen um, about having one man die for... Right, right. Caiaphas, absolutely. So, verse 15, God declares, I could have just simply wiped you out, Pharaoh, and all your people. Implying that, like, we're talking about guilty man. He could have, this is an issue of just judgment. But then God explains in verses 14 and 16 why he didn't just wipe Pharaoh out. Why instead he hardened Pharaoh's heart, even though Pharaoh was hardening his own heart at the same time? Why? So that God would display his power through Pharaoh. By every time Pharaoh not letting people go, God judging them with the plague, right? So that's verse 14. For this time, I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth, right? Verse 16, but for this purpose, I've raised you up to show my power, you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So for his glory, for the fame of his name in all the earth, he hardened Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh would not let the people go and he could show his justice, his just judgment, his power to judge, his wrath against sin in the plagues. And Paul sees Exodus 9.16, in context, as establishing God's right to judge instead of to save. So he can choose to save some. I will show mercy to whom I have mercy. Or he can choose to judge sinners for his glory. Both are for his glory, right? When he chooses to save, it's to the glory of his grace. When he chooses to judge, it's to the glory and praise of his justice, right? And his power. So, this is what is happening here when Paul cites that text. He's, going, he's really going beyond God's purpose of election to save and to show mercy, right? I mean, in some ways, that's hard enough for us to accept. We're like, but God, you, you should give everyone an opportunity to be saved. And we say, well, I, I can show mercy to whom I want. But he goes beyond that. He says, and I can judge whoever I want. I can harden whoever I want. Wow. Okay, see what I'm saying? This is, it's, it's hard to wrap our minds around this. Or it's also hard to understand, is it? It's just hard to accept. Let's go to the next verse here. So if someone read verses 19 through 21. Say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Will the thing molded say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Or does not the potter have authority over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Okay. So what's the point here? 
Let me summarize it. It might seem unfair that God would choose to harden someone, which is what he just said, right? And then turn around and hold them accountable for their unbelief. But it isn't unfair because God has the right to do what he chooses with his creation. That is the, I think, plain meaning of the text. So verse 19, here's another objection. Do you remember the first objection that he dealt with? What shall we say then? Is there an injustice on God's part? Right? That's sort of an equal opportunity argument. Wait, 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 God, you choose to save some and not others? Isn't that unfair? And he says, no, because we're talking about mercy here. It's not owed to anyone. I can choose to give it to some. But then he went further and talked about, and I can harden some. This is where the other objection comes in. Well, if you talk about you have the right to harden someone so that like Pharaoh, they are judged for their unbelief, why, why do you still find fault if the person that you harden can't resist your will. So in other words, if people's unbelief is ultimately the result of God's choice, choice to not show mercy, but to harden, then how can God still hold them accountable for it? Do you see how that's the force of the objection? Verse 20, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to his molder, Why have you made me like this? So do you see why I said up here, because, and you want, to, you want to get into a philosophical argument here, right? You want to say, well, you know, God has some explaining to do here. Paul, you got some explain. You got to explain to me how God can, you know, harden someone and then hold them accountable for their unbelief. We got some philosophical difficulties here that you got to sort through. But what does he do? God has the right to do what he chooses with his creation, right? Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Okay, I want three volunteers, first volunteer to, to look up a verse. I saw your hand, see, you raised your hand. So now Val, you got to look it up. Job 46 through 8, Job 46 through 8, someone else. Isaiah 29, 16, someone. Okay, Quinn. And then Isaiah 45, 9. Okay, Adam. so instead of answering the question right why does he still find fault who can resist his will and by the way you know there are things to say philosophically about that question right how can god ordain something to occur and then hold people accountable for it you know like what's the quintessential example of someone doing the most wicked thing of all history And yet it was something that that God judged him for, but it was something that God ordained. What's the quintessential example of that? Judas, Judas, right? We know it happens. It happens over and over in the Bible, right? God raised up the Assyrians to destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. And then he he says, but you did it for evil purposes, so I'm going to judge you, right? Over and over and over again. So there are things that we can say about that. How can God's sovereignty and human responsibility be compatible? There's things to say, but... What we need to say is, it's clearly true, they are compatible. He doesn't give the philosophical answer. He just, he questions our right to ask the question. And that's why it reminds me of Job. It reminds me of this text. So can you read that text, Val? Sure. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Raise yourself like a man. I will question you. 
and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you see that? Like, do you remember Job was so certain that he had a case against God and he, and he wanted to bring God before him and, and ask God the question because he was sure he could prove that God was in the wrong here, right? And Job's, God said, Job, you know, do you, are you really going to question me? Are you going to put me in the witness stand and prove me wrong? You know, who are you, oh man? To answer back to God. You see, that's it's the same type of thing that, that Paul's doing here. It's it's as like like he's thinking of the ending of Job here. And then he cites Isaiah 29:16 and perhaps Isaiah 45:9, which we'll look at in a second, to establish that creatures have no right to question what the Creator does with his creation. And by the way, here we're talking not just about rocks and trees and hills and oceans. We're talking about people. We are the clay. He is the potter. We are the creature. He's the creator. He can do with us what he wants to do. That's, that's his argument. And by the way, in appealing to this potter clay imagery, he's not only citing one verse in particular, probably this verse, he's tapping into, there's a, the smattering of verses in the Old Testament that use the exact same imagery, right? So we'll look at another one here. But uh, Isaiah 29, 16, is that you, Quinn? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, that the thing made to say of its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed, say of who formed it, he has no understanding? You see, it's God said that to Israel in the Old Testament. And Paul is evoking that same words of God. Say, like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, you're my pot. Are you seriously going to tell me that I did something wrong in the way I made you? Or in how I designed you? Or how I'm going to use you? You don't have that right. Isaiah 45.9 is another one. Who, who had that one? Yes, Adam. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earth and pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? Do you see that? It's, it's almost comical, right? Is the little pot... That was made by the potter, going to speak to the potter and say, well, you, you made a mistake here. You didn't make me with handles. <laughs> he, he's saying it's foolishness. And that's the sentiment that Paul is tapping into here. So he doesn't answer the philosophical question. He just says, who are we to question God's ways? He does it this way. He hardens and then holds that person responsible for their pride and willful rejection of him. And those two things are compatible, God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And we say, well, how can he do that? And Paul says, how can you question God? You are the creature. He is the creator. Okay. Verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So right here, He's just establishing a a general principle about potters and pots, right? But you can kind of see where he's headed with this. And it makes you very uncomfortable, right? But let's just look at, he's asking whether a potter has the right to make out of his clay one vessel, one pot for honorable use, like a serving dish, right? So a potter can take a lump of clay, he can take some of it, and he can make it a dish that he's going to use at the table to put food on. 
And he could take that same lump, take another piece of clay, and make another for dishonorable use. Uh, something to carry out waste, right? Like a waste basket or other things that you could imagine. And he's saying, does the potter not have the right to do that? And what's the answer? Obviously he does, right? Yes, yes, he does. But what are you getting at, Paul? Okay, we're going to put this on hold for a second, and we're going to come back to it. But let me just point one thing out. So I usually have an interpretive question. I'm just going to make an interpretive note here. Paul cites two potential objections to his teaching about election. Number one, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And then the second, number two, what you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Now, I want to point something out about this. There are many commentators who have looked at this passage, right? They see what it seems to be saying, and they say, that can't be right, right? That can't be right. So they've come up with ways to interpret it differently to make it seem more fair to them, right? Now, I'm, I'm not arguing that many do that. They've convinced themselves that they're not doing it for that reason. They're doing it because they, they genuinely think it should be interpreted a different way. But I'm just suggesting that I don't actually think it's that hard to understand what it's saying. It's just hard to accept. And so you could see when someone goes out of their way to interpret in a different way, you have to question the motives, right? So I think some people, to avoid the apparent injustice of Paul's teaching that God chose to show mercy to some and harden others, many have suggested that God's choice really is based on something he first saw in them, right? So for instance... This is where the issue of foreknowledge comes in. And a lot of people would say, but okay, why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Because he saw that Pharaoh was already hardening his own heart. So then he responded by hardening Pharaoh's heart, right? Or you could take it farther. Why does God choose to save this person and to judge this person? They say, well, God looked into their life, saw that in the future they were going to choose to believe in him. And so he chose to give them mercy. And in these cases, he saw that they would reject him, so he chose to judge him. So again, putting the onus back on the person so that it seems more fair, right? That he would choose this person, of course, because he knew they would believe or he knew something about them. But I just want to point out, if you do that, right? Not only does it contradict what Paul said in verse 11 about the two boys, Jacob and Esau, before they were born or had done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose of election might stand. So not only if you're going to go that route, God saw they would do something, so he chose them. You're contradicting verse 11. But also, you take these two potential objections that he cited, and you make them nonsensical, right? Because if it's true that God, yes, he chose some and not others, but it was based on something he saw in them, then why would it be unjust, right? Why would there, these objections even be lodged if that's what Paul really meant? Do you see what I'm saying? You, you make nonsense out of the objections. And so you have to ask yourself, you have to face the text and come back to it and say, however I'm interpreting Paul here, would it lead to these objections? Because if you are interpreting him in such a way that the objections no longer make sense, You've probably not interpreted the passage right, right? 
And so as difficult as it is, we really have to face what it's saying. If, if God's choice to show mercy to some was based on something he saw in them, no one would object that it was unjust. And it puts it back on man's ability right. to God choosing. Right. And, 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 you know, a lot of times there is a, a uh, apparently good motive in doing that because you're trying to save God from something that seems unfair to you, right? If you say that, Paul, that makes God unjust. And so you try to interpret it in a way that makes God, you're, you're trying to save God's reputation. But notice, not, that doesn't make sense of the passage, does it? <laughs> it, it? It turns the passage on its head. Because then why would Paul cite that objection? In other words, if what Paul's saying doesn't seem unfair to you, to the natural man, you probably haven't interpreted it right. <laughs> right? Okay, let's move, go back to the text and pick up, remember, the potter and the clay. Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump some vessels for honorable use, like serving dishes, and other vessels for dishonorable use, like carrying waste? Does he not have that right to do that with the clay? And we say, of course he does. So, now he says this in verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known as power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath? Oh, you see that language? He's tying back into verse 21, right? Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared before and for glory. So sure enough, Paul raised this illustration of the potter and the vessels because he was going to use it as an illustration of how God deals with people. And as uncomfortable as it is, we have to face the fact of what he's saying here. What's he saying? He's explaining that just as a potter has the right over the clay that he described in verse 21 to make some vessels that he made for a dishonorable purpose and some vessels that he made for an honorable use. He's saying in the same way, God has the right to create some people whom he's chosen to save and to create other people who would be destined to be judged. I just don't see how you get around it. Very sobering. So first of all, I think we have to see both the prior context and the terminology of vessels prepared for, for certain purposes. That indicates a clear parallel between what he's saying here and the principle that he had established in verse 21 about the potter and the vessels. So there, he's clearly drawing a parallel. If you miss that parallel, you could easily go haywire in how you understand this text. Because there'd be a great temptation not to say, well, it can't, he can't be saying that God creates people, creates people for honorable use and dishonorable. He can't be saying that, but he is. So it is somewhat difficult because he uses this phrase, what if, right? So you think, oh, good. He's, he's, this is just all in theory, right? He's not describing, he's not saying this is how it actually is. But I think if you interpret it that way, I think you're misinterpreting the Greek construction here. So it is true, there's a conditional sentence being laid out, an if-then structure to this. And it's interesting that 
in the Greek, the then part is only implied. It's only implied. So it's like he... Sometimes we do this when we're talking. We say, well, if this is true, and then we just leave it because it's like obvious what the then part would be, right? The then part is implied, right? So if the 49ers were to play the Chiefs in the Super Bowl... Obviously, we all know who would win, right? Yes. 49ers. But, <clears throat> oh, I, I really do not know. I'm not, I don't have anywhere near that certainty. So, um, But you see, this is a, a if-then structure, but the then is implied. So it's as if he's saying, what if God did this? And then the then part that's implied is, who could question his right to do this, right? And I, I say that because of the context. That's his whole point, right? He has the right to do this. If he decides to do it this way, who are we to object? Right? And so the construction, the if-then construction is used for rhetorical flair. It's not meant to say, well, this is all hypothetical, right? It's saying, no, this is the way it is. But he presents it in if-then so that you come away. It has this force of saying, well, yeah, I guess we can't object, Right? If God chooses to do it that way, then we have to accept it. Verse 22, he's tying into the illustration of verse 22 or to verse 21 about potter and clay, and he can make some vessels for honorable use, some for dishonorable use, saying, as the potter has the right to create vessels for dishonorable use, well, so God has the right to create and then put up with Sinful people that turn out to be sinners, right? Because of Adam's sin. Whom he has chosen not to save, but instead are prepared for destruction. He's chosen that they would be judged, right? That's why I use the word destined. It's because I think that's the force behind it. Because this goes back to creation, right? He has the right to create, like a potter creates vessels out of clay, people who would be destined to suffer eternal destruction for their sin. And why? Why would he do that? Why would he create people that he was not going to save, but he was going to judge justly to show his wrath and to make his power known? It's a very sobering, very difficult thing. I understand. This is what theologians call the doctrine of reprobation. Verse 23 On the other side, as the potter has the right to create some vessels for honorable use, so God has the right to create people whom he's chosen to receive mercy and glory so that he might display different aspects of his glory. Which aspects does he show through them? To make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So he's going to show his mercy through them. Let me just... Tackle one interpretive issue here because I know it's probably on your mind. What does Paul mean by that term prepared in verses 22 and 23? That's critical to this whole thing, right? In verse 23, if you look there, it says, In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So remember the tie into the to the the illustration. The potter makes vessels. 
right? I, I don't think you can take that out of the picture here when you're understanding what preparing is. He prepares certain people for mercy in verse 23. I think he's talking about creation. But in verse 22, it's a little bit different, isn't it? Look at verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Did you notice the difference? What's the difference between that and verse 23? Verse 23, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Verse 22, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. The, the word prepared in the English, it's the same. But notice there's the he has prepared beforehand for glory in verse 23, where it doesn't say anything about who did the preparing in verse 22. Do you see that? And many theologians, your interpreters have picked up on that. They've keyed on that. They say, ah, see, in the case of the vessels of mercy, God did the preparing. In the case of the vessels of wrath, it just says they were prepared. So God didn't. He didn't have to do with that preparing. They, they must have done that themselves, right? I think that is just very awkward because there's a clear parallel here between the two preparings and they're both reflecting, they're both parallel to the illustration of the potter and the clay. So in the illustration of the potter and the clay, who did the preparing? Of both, the vessels for honorable use, vessels for dishonorable use. The potter, right? I really think that here it's, it's implied in verse 22 that just like in verse 23, God did, does the preparing. He prepares, like a potter, vessels of wrath fit for destruction. He prepares vessels of mercy for glory. Like a potter taking out of one lump and making two different vessels, one for honorable use, one for dishonorable use. So that's just explaining what I, the word prepare in the Greek, if you look it up in a, the most common Greek lexicon, the meaning of it in this type of context, in this context is to prepare, to create for a purpose. So again, if that's, if that's what the word means, then it's pretty clear who does the preparing, right? So as provocative as it sounds to us, Paul seems to be saying that God created some people whom he had destined, right? He created them knowing that he was not going to save them, but that they were going to be judged. And other vessels that he had chosen to show his mercy to. And, you know, when you talk about vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory, you're like, yeah, he's already talked about that in verse eight, in chapter 8, right? Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's very clear. It's the other side of the coin, though, that is extremely difficult for us to think about, that he would create people. That he had destined beforehand that they would be judged. Isn't that a direct correlation, though, to John chapter 6? Yeah, John chapter 6. Are you talking about John six forty four? Right. Yeah, it, that, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, right? It, it reflects that God has some whom he's chosen to save, and therefore he draws them. 
So as soon as you say that, you recognize, oh, there's a flip side to that. There's others that God has chosen not to say, and therefore. But I will say this. You see this blue lettering here? Though the parallel between them is not exact, right? So on the one hand, we have the doctrine of predestination. That is, God predetermines to save some. And then we have the doctrine of reprobation. He predetermines not to save others. And I think that I put it that way, not to save, because I think this is extremely important that we recognize there's not an exact parallel between these two things, right? That on the one hand, he chooses actively to save. On the other hand, he chooses not to save, right? And instead to give the just judgment that we all deserve as sinners to some. And so that the, the predetermination is not exactly the same in each case. One is like, if you think of the, the Passover, like one, he chooses not to give their just desserts, but to give them mercy instead. And the other, he's choosing to simply give the justice that they deserve. So I think, I think we have to be very careful in the way we view that. And I will also say that there's all kinds of theological discussions in this issue of predestination and reprobation that we have to think through. There are the different views about how that this all plays out in the decrees of God in eternity past that take place in the Reformed camp. So if you look at systematic theology books or whatnot, you could see some of these discussions, and I'm not going to get into all that here. Uh, but I think that this text is a key text that we have to go back to and say, I just don't see how God could be saying, how Paul could be saying anything other than this. It just, I don't know how you get around it. And again, getting back to that, putting man at the center versus God at the center. If you put God at the center and he can do whatever he wants, then actually we were created, but we, because of the sin of Adam, we are all destined. So, we, we deserve whatever wrath we get unless by His mercy He chooses to use us. And He uses those that are already destined for wrath uh, to be used as His purpose to show His glory. Because it's all about God, not about what's comfortable for mankind. Right. I want to say, you know, when you read through this text, if you didn't have verses 1 through 3, you could think, Paul, you are a cold man, you know. <laughs> But, you know, then you go back to verses 1 through 3, and he says, Look, I have unceasing sorrow and exceeding grief over my kinsmen according to the flesh. I would be willing to be cursed myself if they could be saved. But what these texts show is that he recognizes that it's not up to him. Right? That who receives mercy and who doesn't has always been a matter of God's sovereign determination. And he has the right to do that because he is the creator. And we do not have the right to question him. So it, what this is, is not a cold man speaking of theological realities out of a cold, stony heart. What we do have is a man giving a bop in the nose to human pride and arrogance and saying, stop. You can't accuse God of injustice. right? And, and we need that, right? We need that, especially when we think about these things, because it's one thing to talk about these things abstractly, right? 
That's quite another to put faces into the picture of people that we know and love. So we need to have this in our theological bank. But does this in any way, does this short circuit our motivation to proclaim the gospel to people and call them to be saved? Does it? No. Did it for Paul? The man suffered untold persecutions and trials and tribulations to, to bring the gospel. And he was calling people to say, be reconciled to God. I'm his ambassador. So it in no way entered, but he needed to know, he did know that at the end of the day, his kinsmen, according to the flesh, who persistently rejected God, at the end of the day, at the very back of that, you could say, why did they do that? Because they're of their sin and unbelief and their hardness of heart. But at the very back of it is God's sovereign choice. And I have to be okay with that. I have to submit to that. Yeah. Can you just clarify for me, Jeremy, um, you've got in uh, parentheses there, uh, B-DAG. Thank you. This is, sorry, this is just one of the standard lexicons, Greek lexicons. So a lexicon, a Greek lexicon is just basically a Greek dictionary. So if you, if you look up the word, Translated prepared, katarizo, in a Greek dictionary, you're going to see various definitions. It could mean different things in different contexts. But in this context, the meaning is, when it's used in this kind of context, the meaning is to prepare, that is to create for a purpose. So you see, to prepare, that's why they get that translation. Or to create for a purpose. So that's, I'm just pointing out that it's in line with the standard lexicon interpretation of its meaning in this context. So maybe you can just give us some pastoral counsel as to how to deal with and how to look at the world around us and some people that we love the temptation of just saying, wow, there's some people walking around that there is no hope for. Right. How, you know, and it, and it helps to understand that Paul grieved over those that he knew there was no. So how do we live like this is like real people we're talking about, right? And how do we grapple with like that we don't fall into despair? Going, well, there's just people that there is. Right. I think on the one hand, I would say that thank God that we are not omniscient like He is. We don't have the perfect character the perfect nature to handle that kind of knowledge. So I don't look out on you on a Sunday morning and see a little red E for elect, right? I mean, I don't know, and none of us do, right? And and so thank God, that's why we just proclaim the gospel. We have hope in that sense for everyone. <laughs> we just say, I don't know, but I know that God can save them through the power of the gospel. And so I proclaim... I don't stop praying for my unbelieving children and for my unbelieving brother or my unbelieving spouse. Like, and I keep proclaiming the gospel to them because I don't know, right? So in that sense, I think that's one thing I would say. But in terms of the philosophical struggle that we might have with the fact that there are people destined for heaven and others that are destined by definition, if God chooses to save some, he must not choose others, right? I mean, to wrap our minds around that, I think there are things that we have to say, okay, I know this is true, 
But I know that I'm not going to be able to wrap my mind around it fully. And so this is where I, I point people back with things like this that we, we just, you know, our tendency is to say, that's not fair, or I don't understand how that could possibly be right. I always point people back to Psalm 131, where David says, I, I, do, I, I do not occupy myself with things that are too marvelous for me, but like a weaned child, you know, I rest in God, like a weaned child in his arms, right? I think there are things that we just have to say, Lord, <laughs> you're God, and I'm not, and thank goodness. And there's a lot of things that, about your ways that I'm not fully going to understand. So you have revealed that this is true, and I must accept it. But I have to also accept that I'm not going to fully understand everything about this. And that's okay, because I'm a creature. Yeah. I think one of the greatest results to understand this passage as it's, as it's written, as you're explaining, is that we understand that God chose us and that it was nothing we did. And I am so eternally grateful. Every right. I'm grateful right. because God right. didn't have to choose me. Right. But he did. And that's the response that is the right response. Yeah, so typically when the Bible speaks of election, it speaks to of election to us as Christians and says, you want to know why you're saved? Because God chose you out of his grace so that why does he do that? You know, he doesn't go around to unbelievers and say, you know why you're not saved? Because you're not chosen. He doesn't do, the Bible doesn't really do that. What it does do is say to us who are saved, teaches us the ultimate reason why, because God chose you even before the foundation of the world that you might be adopted as his child. And what is that to do? What? Why me? And he said, well, it wasn't about anything in you. It was just to the praise of his glorious grace. And you say, well, then I praise his glorious grace, right? Yeah. I think too, like, um, thinking about uh, our, those that we love and are praying for, and you hear that, then, you know, you get that fear that scares like oh lord but then i always go back to but lord you burden my heart to pray to them right yeah yeah he impresses them on the line right and which is which is what he does the spirit abides in us and he causes us to pray right for for our absolutely like our our prayers and our sharing the gospel, they're all means by which God saves people. I, I would say this, like, there is that question in our minds that is going to be fearful to us. And that is, what if this person, God has, you know, they are some of these prepared, a vessel of wrath prepared for destruction. What if, what if this person, here's what I would say, someone in my family, <laughs> or I could just say, this is me too, like, struggled with eternity, the idea of eternity, right? Have you ever really thought about eternity like forever and ever, no end? And it starts making you scared, right? Like, I don't know how that could be. But it bursts because it's bursting the bonds of the, the, the bounds of your mind, right? One of the ways that I comforted him and I comfort my own soul is I point him to Revelation 21, right? Where it says, talks about the new heavens and the new earth. Every tear will be wiped away. No more crying, no more pain anymore. That somehow, when we, when we get to the eternal state, we will not be worrying about this, right? <laughs> That's part of the thing. 
You get to eternity. How am I going to make it through eternity where there's no end? I, I, I can't understand that. Well, but you know that you will because the Bible says. So with this too, right? What if someone isn't going to be saved? Well, I don't have all the answers to the philosophical struggle, but what I do know is that Revelation 21, right? When we get there, none of us are going to be, every tear will be wiped away. There will be fullness of joy. We will see the works of God, and we will say, hallelujah. We see. So that's what we have to fall back on. Let me just run through these very quickly here. This passage is a clear reminder of God's sovereignty over salvation, right? You can't miss that. He determines who will be saved and who won't be. He does this apart from anything he sees in us. So that's one thing we learn. Second, this teaching challenges us to humble ourselves before God in different ways. He has the right to do what he wants with his creatures. We don't have the right to question him in this regard. So there's a humbling. It also reminds us that our sense of justice is not ultimate. It's such an important point. God is just whether he seems like it to us or not. If you stop and think about it, you go, well, duh. But, it, but yet we, we <laughs> struggle not to rise up and say, that's not fair. Finally, it teaches us that God is glorified through both saving and judging sinners. This is a passage you say, well, why would he create people who he chose not to save? What, would be, what possible good could come from that? As difficult as it is to wrap our minds around it, this text tells us that it was to show his wrath and to make his power known. That, In other words, he will be glorified both through salvation and judgment. So that's an answer. It's not the only answer, but it is an answer. That's difficult to accept. But you know, when Revelation talks about Babylon falling, what did the saints say? Do they say, oh, that's too bad about Babylon? They say, hallelujah. They praise the Lord for his just judgment. And we have to come to a place where we realize God can be glorified both through salvation and judgment. Okay, you guys, I know we have gone, wow, (laughs) way over. This is like a wow amount of over. But if if there's any text that we're going to do that, it would probably be this one. Let's pray. Father, we humble ourselves before you. We recognize that your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than ours. That we we are so small and so weak in our ability to understand and so corrupted in our sinful nature that we struggle at times to uh, understand and, and more than that to accept certain things about your ways. But Father, we know you have told us not to question your justice in these things. And you have instructed us for our good in this sobering and difficult truth. We pray that you would cause it to sink into our hearts, that we would be willing to receive it, and that it would have the intended impact upon us to remind us of your sovereignty in the matter of salvation and, and Lord, as Katrina was saying, that, that we might be God-centered in our thinking rather than man-centered in our thinking of these things. Oh, Lord, help us to embrace these things as we are and to understand as much about them as you have given us to.
And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thanks, you guys.